everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test? I'm Maddie. And I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk about some things you should have learned in school, but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes, I don't even know what we're going to talk about this week. We've hit, like, I think last week just so much crap happened. And then this week, nothing happened. Well, I know what we're going to talk about. So if you're the kind of person who usually fast forwards through our banter, first of all, what are you doing with your life? It's like, that's the only good part. That's the only good part of this podcast. I mean, we have to live with our own banter all the time. You can do it for like 30 minutes. But that's not what I'm telling you to not fast forward through. We wanted to let you know about this really cool event that's coming up. It is called Indie Pods United. It is happening November 29th through December 3rd. You can join us and all these other amazing podcasts and live speakers and musicians and comedians covering all sorts of topics. doesn't matter if you're a podcaster or not. There is something everybody can get out of this convention. And the coolest part, other than it being 100% virtual, is you get all access for only 10 bucks. That is a deal. And if you want to actually see us try to make this happen without editing and with our faces, we will be performing, performing, doing whatever we do on December 1st from 6 to 6.30 p.m. uh, Central Time. So you can see us. You can see our friends from Mythstory who have come and um, done little little promos on our show before. You can see basically anything you want is going to happen. I'm really excited because there are also all kinds of paranormal podcasts going to be there and some pretty well-known comedians. I'm hoping that there's some D&D content because I love me some Dungeons and Dragons. Well, if you go to the Indie Pods United Virtual Summit five days of podcasting and entertain, and then it cuts off, and I'm guessing it says entertainment, Facebook page, which is an event, it actually has an entire schedule for you. Oh, cool. So it is going from like 9 a.m. until like at least 12 hours a day. So there's a lot that's going to happen. So even if you're at work during the day, you, there's stuff before, there's stuff after, there's stuff you can sneak away during your lunch break to watch. It's going to be really cool. We are so excited. We feel like the smallest fish in the biggest possible pond with this. Yes, I can't believe these fools have let us into their podcast festival. Maybe they just don't know who we are. Maybe they think we're someone else. Maybe they think it's like, oh, they're just talking about history in school. They must be super boring and not at all completely insane. Yeah, I'm definitely not going to piss a whole lot of people off today. But before I get into that, uh, the website for this. I closed it because I'm a dum-dum. Uh, IndiePodsUnited.com. You can find out all the information you want to want to, uh, want to know. This is why I don't record ads for a living. You can find out all the information you want to know from IndiePodsUnited.com. You can buy tickets. You can see everything that's going on. And we really hope that you'll come hang out with us. We're so excited. I've already, I've actually picked a topic already, but I'm not going to tell you. I've also, I think I've got a topic picked out. I'll see if it's exciting enough. I need to do some more research. Yeah. And if you're tired of hearing us drone on for a full hour and 20 minutes, this one's only 30 minutes. So yeah. So (laughs) don't worry. We're going to be brief, which I know they'll just cut us off. It'll be like how the debates should go. (laughs) They'll just Just, cut our mics. Just cut our mics and be like, you're done. It's like, okay. And that's why they found out the Philosopher's Stone was in fact made out of, then they cut me off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We expect it to happen exactly like that. Exactly like that. Yeah, so come join us. We're excited. Um, gosh, has anything else really happened? No. I took a nap yesterday, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you know what a high-stress person I am, this is the first time in my life I've taken a nap without feeling guilty afterwards. Yep. Uh, I managed to fix a tire on a bicycle. <laughs> this week, I think after the last few weeks of just insanity, 
It was kind of nice to have a calmer than usual week. I did read a book. I actually sat and read a book. It was called The Black Hope Horror. It is a nonfiction paranormal book that is very similar to Poltergeist. It's very much written like almost like a journalist wrote it. It's very straightforward. If you've read Amityville Horror, you kind of know what I'm talking about. But I actually did get spooked at a couple of points. So I um I am rereading a book right now that I really like. It's called Uprooted by Naomi Novik. I love it. You're rereading a book when I've told you repeatedly that there's a book I want you to read. It's I, I know. I'm a bad person. But this is an audiobook. There is not an audiobook of the one I want you to read. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. Can we talk to the people who published The Princess Bride about why there's not a full blown audiobook? Oh my you know you know who would be a great narrator for the princess bride literally anybody who's still alive from that cast yeah wesley yeah and he loved they all love it mandy patinkin Mm -hmm. would be awesome uh one of them does narrate the version that's already out there but it cuts out 99 percent of the story and it's basically the stuff that's in the movie and the movie is great i have nothing against the movie but the book has just so much going on and they cut it all out apparently and it wasn't worth getting like the audiobook is like an hour uh it's not worth it yeah read the book though I might have to read that book in the in the future when I am at jury duty. Oh God! Yeah, uh, on election day, I got a summons for jury duty, so I got federal the, jury duty. I got the ever living shit like civic duty out of me that Thursday. It's a Tuesday. Although Tuesday election do, day was Tuesday. We do need to find out if you're actually able to participate in it because Austin's you know huge criminal history and connections to the underworld might and, make him and my connections to the criminal justice system. I'm basically. If you've watched the TV show Law and Order, I did all of that. He was both the law and the order. It's like left fist law, right fist order. Bam, bam. Yeah, no, Austin actually has held a job in the past that might make him unable to do it. I know, so I gotta gotta figure out if I can actually. (laughs) And every day it's, did you call them? Oh, shit. I'm like, yeah, I didn't remember this morning either. It's January. I mean. Yeah, but earlier is better. That way you don't have to keep thinking about it. I know this is fascinating to all of you. Don't worry, we're going to go uh, into even more fascinating stuff soon, because I'm going to talk about a uh, behavioral sciences study that has been widely pop- popularized. Are you doing a psychology episode this I'm time? I'm doing kind of a psychology episode. Because usually psychology is my turf. Yeah, usually I just cover history and science, and you cover psychology and history and science. She's just smarter and better <laughs> than me. He said it, I didn't. I'm just well-trained. So I'm going to get, okay, I'm just going to go into this. I'm not going to talk about what it is because it is so completely insane. And I think Wait, it's... so you're going to do a whole podcast segment without talking about what it is? You'll find out, but I'm not going to do like an introduction. So you're already just planning on failing this class presentation. Yes. Gotcha. Because I think it makes it more interesting as a narrative. I'm not trying to be factual here. I'm trying to be entertaining. Oh, so you're telling us up front. Are you're you gonna not li- entertained? You're going to lie to us. That's what yes. you're telling us up front. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's completely insane series of experiments. And I want to talk about them. And it's just bonkers. So in the late 50s, an, an-, an animal behavior scientist named John B. Calhoun, which by the way, the B in Calhoun and John B. Calhoun stands for bump ass. Really? Really. Why? That's his name. Is it is it spelled like that? B U M P A S S. Weird. John Bumpass Calhoun. All right. I think we know why he went with B. <laughs> anyway, he uh, was trying to f- figure out like how big he could make a rat colony in his barn. He actually asked his neighbors permission. It's like, hey, can I make a really huge rat colony in my barn? And they were fine with it. So he built like a big like pen for rats, and he thought I could probably get thousands of in, in, thousands of rats in here since there's no predators, there's no like you know exposure to elements, no disease. 
uh, and and limited food and water, I should get thousands of rats. But the population kept peaking around 150. And also, these rats in the pro- close proximity started exhibiting strange behaviors. So you thought, I want to research further into this and see what's going on. Because these rats, they weren't breeding as much as you thought they would. And like they weren't tunneling like they used to. They were just like balling up dirt and rolling it around and just not acting like normal rats. Are we going to end up with a rat king? All the tails knotted together? Roaming the streets of New York? So he spent the next few decades trying to build various rodent utopias that would basically be like self-sustaining, massive, like, colonies and societies of rodents. Uh, He did a lot of smaller experiments over time, but his biggest experiment and his grandest one was his 25th experiment, or as he called it, Universe 25. Yeah, he uh, he gets some he gets very flowery and descriptive in his text. So was he an animal behaviorist, or is that what he just called himself while working in his backyard? He, no, was, he was actually an actual animal behaviorist. He was uh, doing this for the National Institute of Mental Health. Okay. Yeah, so he was he was actually studying stuff. So this was a ten foot by fourteen foot enclosure. Uh, it was divided into four quadrants uh, with identical feeding areas using electrical fences. Um, it had central squares for feeding called main squares, and it had high rises of apartments with ramps going up to them for like various nesting areas for all of these mice. So it's basically what we've set up for our cats. More or less. <laughs> and uh, so he stocked it with food and water and he let four mice loose in this enclosure, four males and four females, and they started observing. The population skyrocketed. After 560 days, the population hit its peak at about 2,200 mice. What is a rat's gestation period? I don't... And at what age can they begin breeding? I have questions. It's like all, uh, these were, uh, he switched to mice for this experiment oh, instead okay. of rats. But like mice, it's like a month-ish. That's like, I think the population was doubling every like 60 days or so. Wow. So it was really just booming. And, uh, but the mice were behaving very strangely. I'm just going to go into some of their behaviors. Uh, gangs of young males who couldn't find places in groups would roam around attacking uh, young male mice and babies. Uh, Some mice completely withdrew and stopped socializing or trying to mate. I understand that. Um, Others became hypersexual and would just fuck everything. Uh, Many male mice became exclusively homosexual. Uh, Mothers would abandon their babies and eat their young. Um, They would also like kick them out of their nests too young, or they would be trying to move nests around because they were escaping like the violence of these gangs of roaming uh, males. So this whole experiment was just a test run for 2020. Test run for 2020. Uh, and they would start moving them and they'd just drop them on the spot and like forget about them. Or they'd only move half of their babies and just like forget about the others. Uh, and also because of stuff like this, infant mortality got up to as high as 96%. Yeah. There were groups of young females who Calhoun called Pied Pipers. <laughs> Who became obsessed with the researchers' shoes and would simply follow them around. <laughs> like, they'd go into, like, try and feed them, and these females would just flock out and follow their f- shoes around. It's like, what the hell is this? And then they'd, like, come and inspect their shoes and follow them, and then forget what they were, and next time someone would come in, it's like, holy shit, what is this? And they'd come in and follow them again. That's kind of cute, actually, unless it turns into something creepy. Yeah. Uh, there were alpha males congregated in the feeding areas that would violently attack other mice. And then there were the beta males who would just resign themselves to being attacked and murdered. They would just sit there while these alpha males would bite them and kill them. Kind of reminds me of the incels Twitter account we were making fun of the other day. 
uh, near the end of this experiment, most of the mice were cut, had blood on them and had gnawed and bitten tails. Mm-hmm. Then there were the ones he called the beautiful ones. Oh God, this what is with this guy? Oh, it's get it gets weirder. So um, they would stay in one of the more choice apartments and they would just eat, drink, sleep and groom themselves while one of the stronger males would stand at the door as a guard. They did not mate or do any other mouse stuff. They would just groom themselves, eat and sleep. So they're, they've lived, they're living their best mouse lives. Yes. And they were spared from like this orgy of violence going around them with these gangs of mice attacking each other. They were just in their safe little place, grooming themselves, eating and sleeping. And uh, Calhoun tried introducing some of the beautiful ones to uh, other colonies of functional mice to see if they could like relearn and enter mouse society after this. They never figured it out and they never even made it or engaged with other mice. They were broken mice. Like this was this entire experiment, like mice. <laughs> it's just our cat, Gigi. <laughs> yeah. Mice forgot how to be mice. Gigi is a former hoarder cat, and all she does is eat, sleep, and groom, and groom. I mean, she has had babies, the poor thing, but she's she doesn't know how to cat. Yep. Around day 600 of this experiment, or just 40 days after the po- population just peaked, it took an absolute nosedive. It was like the entire colony went extinct shortly after this just because mice stopped breeding or exhibiting like normal mice social behaviors and they just all died so calhoun uh went to publish his findings and he editorialized it a bit as you can tell with his pied pipers and his the beautiful ones Mm -hmm. it also included lots of quotes from the book of revelations so yeah a, a a test run for 2020 yeah He concluded that overpopulation and uh, population density caused behavioral sink. Okay. Which is when, like, these mouse behaviors would develop that were not productive or, like, conducive to mice existing in society and eventually overwhelmed everything. And they just, it was like a waste of time, behavioral sink. Behaviors that were bad and widespread and eventually caused the mice population just to die because there was no mice to model proper behavior that was survivable. Uh, And also he determined that environment could largely affect group behavior in mice. Oh, but not in people. We have nothing to do with that. Oh, no. But he thought that this was a warning to people about our overcrowding and people losing their purpose. Like these mice living in this utopia where everything, everything was provided for them lost their purpose. What have you done today to earn your place in this world? Exactly. Just like in that movie, Uto- show. That show Utopia. It's excellent. You should watch it's it. It's wonderful. We liked it. And just crowding and people losing their purpose. We're essentially, he could see a future in which like, you know, automation had taken a lot of jobs or people just weren't working and they would lose purpose and behavioral sync would start to appear in people. This was a stretch based on his mouse research. He even actually said that this was mouse specific this probably wouldn't happen to people because we have like technology and we think we can adapt these were mice in a cage they couldn't do anything to really change their environment we can i mean as we learn from music it doesn't matter how angry you are if you're still just a rat in a cage yeah so yeah he described that there were in fact two deaths the first death was when the mice had their lack of purpose and they stopped like you know needing to survive or do things and they just eventually degraded into the beautiful ones and the second death was the total collapse that he witnessed in this mouse society i guess is the hunger games based on this experiment lots of shit is based on this experiment uh yeah again he also knows that these were mice and he thought that again with proper urban planning and technology we could avoid this with people uh he thought that if a connected network of computers would help us (laughs) 
um, avoid some of the problems with um, with overcrowding with what he called conceptual space to create and do stuff. Clearly, so he thought like the internet would save society, but that was before we had Facebook. Opposite day. Opposite happened, Facebook. Thanks a lot. Um, he also thought the pursuit of space colonization would continue to provide purpose to humanity, and he wanted to build a core of space cadets. Is Elon Musk like this dude? Like, do we have proof that Elon Musk is not this dude is the he, better question. This guy died in the 90s? Are we sure? Allegedly. So, I mean, knows? Elon Musk is a lizard person. I've seen pictures of him. He doesn't look like Elon Musk, but... Does he I'm not... look like a lizard person? No, he looks... He basically looks like... Um, like your fr- like your friend's weird uncle. Most of my friend's weird uncles look kind of like lizard people. Okay, well, maybe he was. Maybe he was. Lizard person, Calhoun, lizard person, called it 2020. So, <laughs> yeah. Now, when this was published, uh, people were very worried about how things were changing around them in society, because this was in the 50s and 60s when he was doing his research. Uh, like, you know, there was the women's liberation movement, which was destroying society. Absolutely. There was the unrest over the Vietnam War, and all of these Americans protesting something good and old-fashioned, like killing brown people. And they were completely, uh, they couldn't understand why people would be against a war movement. Yeah, it's just baffling how much you wouldn't want us to be at war that made no sense. And of course, the entire like, you know, hippie counterculture. It's like breaking down all of those norms and all of the generational, our kids are ruining the world stuff that people think they're in danger. This idea is hurting our kids. Although, have you noticed how many hippers have, hippies have turned into the hashtag okay boomers? Yeah, they are. It's weird. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like, it's almost, it's almost like an overcorrection. Yeah. It's just so when people read his research, it terrified them. Um, his title also didn't help because he wrote a book about it, and it was called Death Squared, The Explosive Growth and Demise of a Mouse Population. I'd read that. Also, around this time, um, there are some horror stories of industrial farming coming out, like in the news, like how chickens in like a factory farm situation were having to have their beaks cut off because mm-hmm. they kept pecking them, each other to death and just all of this stuff where there's crowded farm situations that led to weird behavior and just death and mayhem amongst animals. Mm-hmm. And this came out at about the same time that was. So this was, you know, people thought, oh shit, maybe overpopulation is bad. And Calhoun- I, I mean, overpopulation isn't great. It's not great, but it's not bad. And Calhoun flammed the flames to this reaction, claiming that population density would reach up the point where humanity could be facing extinction by 2027. I mean, I think we will be facing extinction by 2027, but that won't be why. It'll be global warming, not this. Global warming, Trump. He'll be dead by then, I hope. So Yeah, he's like, I'm going to run again in 2024 if I don't get reelected. Bro, you will be 78 and or dead. Or in jail. When can hope. Or honestly, flee, flee the country to avoid prosecution. So he's going to flee the country, go to Hawaii. He's going to flee the country, go to Puerto hey, Rico. He's made it clear he doesn't think Hawaii is in America. He's been eight years trying to prove that Obama wasn't born in America. No, no he's going to go to Puerto Rico because he did so much for them. And that's another country. Because he totally <laughs> thinks it's another country. It is another country. It's just not. Yeah. It's part it's of the United t- States. It's too. a territory. It's its own country, too, though. It's a territory. It's part of the, it is a part of the United yeah. States. But yeah, it's territories are weird. So a psychologist in 1972 made the claim that behavioral sync was why Kenny Jet, why someone like Kitty Genovese could be killed in a crowded city and nobody would intervene. We did a whole episode on We did a whole her. episode on this. That was That's not what happened. In the first, I think it was in the first 20 episodes or yeah. so. It's called that, the bystander effect. Yeah, it, that's not what happened. Because... People did try and intervene. They called the police and just uh-huh. stuff didn't happen. Uh-huh. And it got misreported and spread like wildfire. Mm-hmm. And even the New York Times has issued an apology since then admitting that they lied. That they lied. Yeah. 
and of course, um, this also sparked a lot of science fiction um, from around the time, like the movie Logan's Run, in which people are living in like a doomsday bunker where all of their needs are met and everyone is living in basically a state of hedonistic pleasure until they turn 30 and the computer has them killed. And other other sci-fi movies like Soylent Green, in which everything is overcrowded and in order to feed the population, um, the the government is scooping up protesters and processing this, processing them into meat to feed the poor population. Soylent Green Soylent is Green, people. It's people, and of course, there's you see other stuff in like you talked about Hunger Games. You can see Hunger Games was affected by this a little bit. Other things, it's just like you will things see things and stuff. Things and stuff. You'll see media that has been influenced by this all over the place, like comic books, Twilight Zone episodes. You know, just huge impact in science fiction, especially in the 70s, because this everyone was worried about overpopulation, and they drew a lot on this for it, and. Most most famously, though, was a book called The Rats of Nim. Mm-hmm. Because Robert C. O'Brien, the author, visited the National Institute of Mental Health and saw this experiment. And while he was there, he noticed that the National was... Institute of Mental Health. Nim. Yep. I've never read the book, but that, that's a clever title right there. Yeah. And of course, uh, while he was in the lab, he saw a Frisbee and he asked, like, what's the Frisbee for? It's like, oh, sometimes we need a break. And they would go play with a Frisbee. And that's how he named the character Mrs. Frisbee from his books, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. So that's how that got the, that name. So was it the scientists who needed the break or were these talking mice? This was the scientists that needed the break. And in this book, uh, a bunch of rats escape a, like, you know, an experimental experiment in the National Institute of Mental Health and go on to try and form their own utopian society. So it's a kind of fun book. It's definitely a children's book. It is a dark children's book. So heads up. All on that the one. best children's books are, though. And of course, Calhoun's work was influential in time, but it kind of made like a bit of a comeback more recently when it started spreading around the Internet and it really caught the attention of the incel groups. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, they saw themselves in this experiment. They saw themselves as the ostracized males who couldn't find mates, who'd been forced to the outside skirts of humanity. So you're saying that they saw themselves as a bunch of rodents. Yeah. And they also saw, saw like, you know, these violent males who would go on these, like, killing sprees as, like, the school shooters and stuff. They saw this, like, oh, society has driven us to be like this. They see this as, like, clearly this is what's happening. Overpopulation is causing this. Uh, they also compare the beautiful ones to the women who are too materialistic to sleep with them. Honey, that is not why they're not sleeping with you. We know. We know. It's There's a big reason why women aren't sleeping with you. And it's not because they are too obsessed with Instagram to notice what a great guy you are. Yeah, it's not. It's because of, you know, who you are as a person. Yeah, all of that. Oh, I skipped to the wrong page. I'm bad at this. <laughs> and of course, you know, all of these stuff about these homosexual males and all of these beta male cucks. Like, come on, all of that stupid crap. They latched onto pe- bits and pieces of this research. And oh my, I like reading some of it. It is super cringy. Mm-hmm. Like, I am scratching the surface of it. I wouldn't look into it. It's just kind of bad. It's it's not good. But they think it's so deep and it pertains to them. But Again, it's... let's reiterate that these people are relating to rodents. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're rodents, but it's really society is the problem. They just don't have enough drive or any reason to do it. It's that it's stupid. Yeah. You know who else doesn't have driver reason? Rodents. Yeah. I love I love rodents. I, lo- I love mice. I love rats. I also don't relate to them on a spiritual level too much. Yeah. Now, hamsters, on the other hand. See, they, they don't really, I don't know if they relate to them. They just see it's like, oh, this experiment proves why I can't find a date. Because you've got the mental capacity of a rodent. Yeah, they do. It's also a deeply flawed look at these findings. And I'm going to go into why. First, 
Mice are much less complex than people. We, we, as Calhoun even said in his findings, have mechanisms and knowledge and tools to prevent this. And also, these mice were trapped. This was not like a society situation. This was a prison, in which his research has been useful for like urban planning and prison planning because like, hey, the way we build things can determine how we interact with our environment and interact with each other. That was the point of a lot of his research, was mm-hmm. trying to build better spaces, not prove that humanity was going to collapse in a hedonistic jumble. Yeah, if you've ever had too many roommates, you know how that can devolve into tail-eating and debauchery. Yeah. And, and not course, the fun kind. Also, like, when people were writing their criticisms of this, uh, it was before pandemic, it's like, also, we're not trapped with each other all the time. We can escape. I and mean, we was, technically can escape. That was That was a big oof for me. It's like, oh... Oh yeah, we as of today, we are the number one fastest growing state in the country. Yeah, go Kansas. I bet is it because we had to have our basketball and our football? Oh, absolutely fucking lutely. God. Hashtag let them play. Oh yeah, God, I was watching I was watching uh basically public public forums and meetings because, you know, I hate myself. <laughs> But it's Parks and Rec is real. Yeah, except for there is no person with a goddamn moral compass on the board of commissioners. I just, like I would I'm willing to settle for Jeremy Jam at this point. I mean, Jeremy Jam would understand that dead patience equals no money. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Yeah, I went out for the first time in months yesterday. I didn't go anywhere. I ran into a gas station real fast. People without a mask walked by another store. People without a mask went to Starbucks. Barista's mask was falling off. Not her fault. I'm not mad at her for it. But I'm like, they need to give her a break so she can go change her mask. And then they wonder why it's going up. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this study, again, was a study of mice. You can't directly apply these results to people. This was, again, this was a study. It's like, yeah, you can affect, your environment can affect how you interact with people. That was a lot of it. He was trying to build a better society for mice. It's like, you can look at it. You can draw some conclusions from it, but you can't draw direct conclusions to behavior like increased incidences of homosexuality or violence or people being ostracized and kicked out of society. We are very different from mice. Except for the whole ostracizing and kicking gay people out of society thing. Yeah. We are not that different from mice when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. But it's diff- It's very different reasons and stuff behind it. Because we are people and not mice. It's a more com- We are more complex than mice. I'm not so sure when it comes to being a dick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course, a 1975 study shortly after this decided they wanted to see what the effects of prolonged overcrowding were on people. So they did a study with high school and college students. And they found that it didn't produce any additional stress or abnormal behaviors. So overcrowding itself isn't the problem. I think it is just the... How did they do this study? I didn't look into it. See, that's my thing is if you... I've taught I at can't look small into every schools study that's and I've taught this. at large schools that are overcrowded. And I can tell you the behavior and ability to learn is very different based on school size. Mm-hmm. But that could also be student to teacher ratio and, yeah. you know, lack of usable air. Yeah, And of course, the results that people were looking at were incredibly cherry picked. They were looking for specific example, examples that they wanted, not results from the study as a whole. Because even though we we're talking about these horrifying behaviors, there were some positive improvements. Like uh, mice began exhibiting more efficient tunneling ma- uh, abilities like nests changed how they did stuff changed in addition to this so it was not they just looked at the stuff that they agreed with and ignored all the other parts the, st- the societies did still collapse though so i mean it's not like it was a good thing so uh and the universe 25 study itself was flawed first of all um people when examining it thought that inbreeding could have been a cause of a lot of these behavioral problems and these psychoses in the mice i mean gg is severely inbred especially because it was it started out as only eight mice, and they thought that it had not enough genetic diversity, 
and psychoses could start developing as the generations increased. So that was one reason. Uh, also, his design had bottlenecks, where basically a few abnormally aggressive mice could have exaggerated control over feeding areas and nesting areas. So it kind of it took some problems that existed and amplified them just by his design. Uh, there was also no control group, so we have no we don't have anything to compare it to. So this was just the results and. Like, that was it. And those what conclusions you can draw from them. Uh, also, some experts have looked at it and thought the space was very small, even for mice. Like Yeah, that sounded really small to me. Yeah, it's like this space was too small for have, to have any type of, like, thriving mouse study, which I'm not sure what his limitations were. He might not have been able to build a larger one where he was. And uh, as we have developed and learned more about animal behavior, um, animals think and animals need to have fun. And there was no entertainment options mm-hmm. in that. There was nothing for them to do. They think that this study could have been diff- done differently if there was stuff to in- mentally engage the mice in this instead of just food, water, and shelter. Yeah, I see a lot in the animal groups I'm in. Like, why is my cat so aggressive? And they're like, well, how often do you play with it? I always thought cats didn't need a lot of attention. They no, do. they need they need you to play with them. They need to be entertained or they will become aggressive just like a person. Yeah. So there was they they needed something to do and he didn't provide that for them. And again, at the time, we didn't realize the importance of play even with animals and including mice. We don't understand it with people either very much. That's why we got rid of recess. Yeah. Also, this was this one was not backed up by anything. But so some people thought that this could have been a uh, survival mechanism, like the baby eating could have been an instinctive reaction to overcrowding to help keep the population in control. So that was this weird study about behavioral sync and mice that people thought would apply to society. And it does to an extent, but not as directly as people think it does. It's just, you'll see it like brought up and especially by incels now. So when next time you see someone saying, we're just like the mice in a cage, it's like, actually, no, we can leave this fucking cage. We have entertainment options. I feel like Rage Against the Machine would not be happy with their idea being used like this. Rage Against, that's not Rage Against the Machine. What am I thinking of then? Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, right, right. Sorry. How the word rage got in there. Despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that was this weird ass study. And I just wanted to talk about it because of the beautiful ones. My favorite meme right now is a Venn diagram. And one side is incel and one side is excel. And in the middle, it says mistakenly thinking something is a date. Oh, God. Both of those things are constant problems. Mm -hmm. Excel. It's like, no, I'm trying to put it in an item number. That's not a date, even though it starts with 11 and this is November. Mm Mm-hmm. Stop it. Yeah, I'm doing a lot with Excel these days, which I hadn't used Excel beyond like scheduling stuff since high school. So it's been a learning experience. Why does it keep switching the date format? It'll be like, you know, 4-nov, 4-nov, 11-6, 4-nov. I'm like, I didn't change your formatting. I have to go back and, mo- and manually do it every fucking time. It's... Uh... It's even worse now that... Okay, I'm not going to complain about Excel on our podcast. (laughs) I could do this for hours. Okay, so are you ready for questions so we can stop this Excel madness? Yes, these questions that will will or will not be on a test, not the answers to the questions. So, will the beautiful ones be on the test? Will it have a picture of Ivanka Trump? Oh my god, she is exactly that. Uh, That's exactly what I was picturing this whole time. She just grooms, eats, and sleeps. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And Jared's there, too. (laughs) So, will our continued misunderstanding of the Gen- Kitty Genovese case be on the test? Yeah, because we can't change things. Yeah. And with the fact that mice are not people. <laughs> <laughs> and this study somehow did not make that clear enough for, like, you know, casual readers be on the test. No, because that's overcomplicating things. Yeah. So, yeah, that was 
Oh, that reminded me. Another problem. A big problem in doing this was anthropomorphizing the results. Mm-hmm. Just like... Calling them things like the beautiful ones. We'll yeah, do it's that. Like, you're trying to make... It's like you're making them too much like people. You're making it so you can't be as detached from it. You're making well, them... It's like that first episode of Community where Jeff is like, it's just like I could take this pencil and tell you its name is Steve and snap it in half and you'll feel something. Steve! Ugh. Although that said, I would be very sad if somebody snapped a mouse in half. And oh I did. Fe- and I did feel kind of bad for the pencil. <laughs> I like wow. mice. I like rats. I really like rodents. I wouldn't want any pet rodents, but... Yep. We've got a snake, and we've got four cats, and one of them is definitely one of the beautiful ones, because she doesn't know how to cat. No. And she just grooms and eats and sleeps. Mm-hmm. Wow. And if another cat is getting attention, she leaps over them to get in your face, because how dare you? She also doesn't understand gravity, because like I will be sitting up, and I'll have another cat on my lap, and she'll think, oh, I'm going to sit on his chest, even though my chest is vertical. And she is just trying to lay down on it, and it doesn't work. But somehow she always manages to get what she wants. It's, she's, I think there's like some sort of weird like cartoon logic, because she doesn't know it's impossible and it can't work, therefore it it works. Yeah, her brother Fezzik makes up for it being overly cautious, though. Oh my god, he's so cute. Yeah, if you haven't seen pictures of our cats, go to onthetestpod.com. You can see pictures of all four of them there. And of course, on our Instagram, at onthetestpod, we share pictures of them from time to time. They visit sometimes, but we are in a new studio right now, so... Yeah, so they've stopped bugging us. Speaking of, why does it smell like cilantro in here? I don't smell cilantro. I've been smelling cilantro this whole time. Maybe you're having a stroke. A very specific kind of stroke. (laughs) Instead of smelling toast, you're smelling avocado toast. There's no cilantro in avocado toast. Have I been making avocado toast wrong this entire time? You don't like cilantro. Why would you be putting cilantro on things? Don't question my methods. He's one of those that tastes soap when he eats cilantro. And I'm one of those who understands that it's delicious. He just enjoys being wrong. But luckily, I'm the only one who knows how to cook, so everything is great. So, shall I get into my topic? Get into your topic. I'm really excited about it. Like I mentioned, I think, earlier anyway, this is going to be a piece that's going to piss some people off. Because it's a uh, there, it is it is fact based, but it leans towards my opinion on things. I'm going to be talking about Romeo and Juliet today. Oh, the no. Shakespeare what, play. What hark? What light through lon- lon- yonder window breaks? Tis I, the sun. I don't know the lyrics to this one. <laughs> lyrics, lines, words. Well, it's okay. I'm going to have you read some Shakespeare with me here in a little bit. Oh. You're in for a treat, people, because I am very bad at speaking and reading. So you may not agree with me on what I'm talking about today, and that's fine. But I'm here to talk about, A, why Romeo and Juliet is a satire and not a tragedy or a romance. And B, why we need to at least allow that discussion in the classroom. And C, why we just need to stop calling it a love story, period. Even if you want to keep teaching it as a tragedy, fine. Stop calling it a love story. I'll talk about all these things. So when I taught this in school, and yes, I did teach Romeo and Juliet to middle schoolers to a certain extent, we talked about whether it was tragedy or satire, or whether it was an example of a healthy relationship, which it is not. Um, If you've never seen or heard of Romeo and Juliet, here's a brief summary. Uh, This is a more graphic version of the brief summary I would give the kids. I gave them the more Twilight Generation friendly version of it. Wait, when did Romeo sparkle? Oh, there's probably some fucking line in there about him sparkling. Unless sparkling is a euphemism for something, in which case it's constantly in there. Ooh. Um, so I told him, like, guys, you're welcome to like this play, just like you're welcome to like Twilight, but you have to be critically looking at things to make sure that you are getting out of them what you're supposed to. So here's the summary of Romeo and Juliet. There's a prologue, uh, you know, two households, both with like indignity and fair Verona, where we lay our scene, blah, 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 blah. 
It tells you literally everything that's about to happen in the show. Can something be a tragedy if you already know how it's going to end? I mean, yes, because like watching like a toddler with an ice cream cone, it's like that kid's going to drop it and he's going to cry. But I guess that's kind of a comedy, but because that's only because I'm a bad person. That doesn't meet the definition of tragedy that I talked about back in episode oh God. a while ago, a while ago, when I talked about what comedy tragedy and satire are. It's titled something like that. I think it's episode like 41. Um, so, yeah, they tell the entire story at the beginning. You know what's coming. Therefore, you're prepared for it. You're not prepared when a tragedy happens. God, I hate that when they like the entire story gets told in the, tra- in the trailer. Mm-hmm. I hate that. Mm-hmm. And Shakespeare did that in this play. So clearly. in this play, yeah. The play opens and we see some servants that work for the families. And the ser- the play opens with a series of rape jokes. That is literally what those jokes are. That entire first couple of pages of the play, dudes talking about how it's cool if they rape and behead women. Wow. Yep. Really glossed over that class, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, we did. And then some servants from the other side come out and they're like, I'm going to bite my thumb at them. And that is the best scene in the whole play. It's like they're trying to explain. It's like they spent a lot of time explaining the biting of them. Okay, this was an insult back then. Yeah, we spent a lot of time focusing on biting your thumb and why that's an insult, but no time focusing on the fact that what led up to it was a bunch of guys talking about, yeah, I'm going to be gentle to the women. I'm going to cut their heads off. Oh, you mean their maiden heads? No. Yeah, it's nothing but rape jokes. And then, so they do the biting your thumb scene, which is basically the equivalent of flipping somebody off in modern speech. And then they have a fight for no reason other than to show that the grudges between the families have affected the society around them. I mean, you haven't spent much time around adolescent men. It's like, oh. I'm a middle school teacher. They get get in fights for everything. Everything is a reason for a fight. Then we meet Romeo. And Romeo, like, comes in several scenes later. It's a, we don't meet these main characters for a while. But we meet Romeo. Romeo just got dumped. This happens, like, on a Sunday, which is important because it gives you an idea of how long this whole thing lasts. So he's whining about getting dumped. And his friend Benvolio is like, hey, let's go to a party. You'll find someone even hotter. And... At the party, Romeo sees a 13-year-old girl and decides he wants to bang her. And yes, we are certain she is 13. It is brought up several times in the play, including in Act 1, Scene 3, when her mother says she's turning 14 in a couple of weeks. Wow. Mm -hmm. Romeo in the play is just called a young man, but he's anywhere between 15 and 21, depending on which source material you are using for this. He is usually assumed to be about 16 to 19. But either way, think about a 13-year-old, which is a 7th grader. Nope. Or an 8th grader. And then think about a 15-year-old, which is a 10th grader. And yeah, it's there's a maturity difference. There's a lot happening. Um, so we have this scene at the party where we're, which we are taught in school is nothing but flirtation and it's okay. And I won't deny that flirting is happening. It absolutely is. But there's something deeper also happening. This is where I'm going to ask you to come read with me. Okay. Uh, we are going to read some Shakespeare. And I'm going to do some translating into what they're actually saying. Um, what's the easiest way to do this? Hand it back and forth, I guess. Yeah. So don't okay. read the yellow part. Okay. Romeo, taking Juliet's hand. If I profane with my unworthiest hand, this holy shrine, this gentle sin, it is this. My lips, two blushing pilgrims ready to stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. So that means, hey, touching your hand is nice, but my hand isn't good enough to do it. So if you don't like touching my hand, we can make out instead. And Juliet responds, good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrim's hands do touch and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. 
Which means, uh, bro, your hand is fine and you're being perfectly polite by only doing that. I mean, people touch the hands of saints to show they're devoted to them. They don't jam their tongues down their throats. Have saints not lips and holy palmers too? Already gagging a little, though. I pilgrim lips that they must use in prayer. Oh, then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. Then pray, grant thou, lest faith turn to despair. So Romeo basically pointed out that saints and devotees have lips. Juliet tells him, yeah, they use them to pray. And he says, oh, well, if we don't make out, I'm going to stop being devoted to you, which lest faith turn to despair. Oh, then, dear saint, let's let lips do what hands do. Our hands are touching. Our lips should be touching. They pray, grant thou, lest faith turn to despair. So I'm going to pray to you with my lips. And if you don't let me, I'm going to stop being devoted. So he finishes saying that saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake, which means, no, I won't be think I won't be participating in this. Okay, thanks. Bye. Then move not while my prayers affect I take. Then he kisses her. Thus from my lips by thine my sin is purged. You should see Austin's face right now. He kisses her without permission and then says he's forgiven now. Now she has the sin on her lips. Her move, Juliet. Then have my lips the sin that they have took? So I'm the sinner now? Sin from thy lips, O oh, trespass sweetly urged. Give my, give me my sin again. <laughs> they kiss again. Oh man, you just admitted you're a sinner, which is pretty hot. I'm going to pretend I can fix that by making out with you without your permission. Then Juliet says, you kiss by the book. So you make out with a lot of people, I can tell. So she literally said no more than once. And he did it anyway. And yeah, she said no in a flirtatious way. No means what? No. Yeah. Doesn't matter how they say it, what they're wearing, what they're not wearing. If they say no, the answer is fucking no. Especially when she's 13. Then act two starts with something that's left out of most productions. A prologue by a chorus that literally says they're in love with each other's looks and that the danger and pleasure mixed together is what really makes it all work for them. They're not actually in love. They're in lust. Yes. And it's also, again, it's probably like, oh, our parents don't want us to do this. That just makes it hot. Yeah. So the party ends and Juliet is processing everything. Romeo shows up at her house that night without being invited. And eavesdrops drops on her while she's trying to work out what she's thinking about this dude. He legitimately says, while he's eavesdropping on her, her vestal livery is but sick and green and none but fools do wear it. Cast it off. I asked Austin earlier, do you know what Vestal livery is? I'm guessing it had something to do with virginity. Yeah, this is the clothing that virgins wear. And he is saying that virginity looks bad on her and she needs to get rid of it. Only fools keep their virginity. Yes, this is what love looks like. It's like I'm going to have sex with that 13 year old. Oh, God. This he, is... he then scares the crap out of her by jumping out of the bushes. And she actually asks him at one point, are your intentions good? And he doesn't fucking answer. But he convinces her that, you know, we're going to get married. And she's like, cool. And they agree to get married the next day, which is Monday. So Sunday, Monday. Bunch of boys get in a fight. Romeo's friend Mercutio is killed by Juliet's cousin. Mercutio is probably the best character in the play, even though he's, you know, eh, as well. Uh, Juliet's cousin is Tybalt. Romeo kills Tybalt. Juliet and Romeo have sex in her room. That's, That's Monday. Monday. Tuesday. 
Romeo is exiled for the murder of Tybalt, and Juliet finds out she's supposed to marry a dude named Paris. She's like, oh shit, I'm in trouble. I'm already married to someone else, plus I'm not a virgin. So she gets some poison potion to fake her death and tells the friar to tell Romeo to save her, but things go awry. Wednesday! Romeo finds her and thinks she's dead. And while he's like out there, he's like, oh no, there's this dead chick. I'm really sad because I'm in trouble now. Whatever. Paris shows up. Paris, the guy she's supposed to marry. Um, Paris is 30, by the way. But this was not Juliet's decision. This was her parents. Okay. Um, I don't know if I'm the only one, but whenever I think of Paris now, I think of Paris from Gilmore Girls in this role, and it improves it 1 million percent. Mm-hmm. And Austin can tell you that back in high school, I was Paris from Gilmore Girls. And she found me. So, hey, there's hope for you, Paris. Uh, Paris is legitimately sad, though. Like, he he was like, hey, she was a nice girl. Like, I was looking forward to marrying her and she was my betrothed. So he came out to put flowers on her grave. He sees Romeo and he's like, oh, shit, that's the guy who killed Tybalt. He's supposed to be in he's supposed to be in exile. I'm going to I'm going to grab him. He doesn't. I actually did go through and read the scene. He doesn't say, I'm going to kill you, Romeo. He says, I'm going to apprehend him. He's going to take him in, basically. So Romeo does the logical thing and kills Paris. And Paris is like, okay, uh, you you got me. I'm dead. Can you at least put me in the tomb with Juliet because she was supposed to be my wife? Which is so sad. And apparently Romeo has a conscience for three seconds and agrees. So the entire final scene, the entire final scene where they're all like, I'm dead. No, I'm dead. Paris is literally dead just lying there. Oh, God. Again, that is so much better than Polonius being in the curtains. <laughs> so uh, Romeo is like dragging his body in. And then he's like, thus with a kiss I die, stabby stab or whatever the fuck he does. Um, and then Juliet wakes up. This is Thursday. So it's barely Thursday now. This is day five. She wakes up and she's like, oh, where is my Romeo? And she's like, oh, no, he's super dead. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Five yeah, days. Five I days. see you counting. Um, oh, no, he's dead. Oh, shit. I'm in so much trouble. I mean, I love him so much. Oh, um, how, how did he do? I'm too scared to stab myself. Does he have poison? His no, he doesn't have poison left. All right, I guess I got to stab myself. And then she stabs herself. That, that young love. I should really like write an updated version of this. And then so she's dead. And then everybody comes in. The friar's like, they're not dead. It's fine. And then everybody gets in there and they're like, oh, shit, they're dead. Um, because and then there's a little part that they always leave out. First of all, they usually cut out Paris's death. I don't know why. Then they cut out the final death, which is one of their mothers. And I did not write down which one it was. <laughs> so mom dies. One of their moms dies because my heart is too broken and she dies. We're like, oh, shit. So five days, six people are dead. But the parents are like, oh, I guess we have to stop fighting now. So wait, wait, wait. She just died of a broken heart? Yeah. So um, next time someone complains about the ending of Revenge of the Sith, where Padme just dies of a broken heart, say, um, that's what Shakespeare wrote. So Broken heart it. syndrome is a real disease. Wow. It's a, do you not know about this? No. It's a real thing. Wow. Broken heart syndrome is a real thing. So wait, the internet was wrong when they were making fun of Star Wars? The internet is always wrong. Yeah, broken heart syndrome. Um, Basically, there's so much stress on your heart, and it's usually caused by some tra tragic or traumatic event that you have. Um, I remember right. And, I mean, I might be wrong because I'm not looking at it. So the... it's like a, co a cortisol buildup. I think that's the stress think, hormone. Like, yeah, your heart starts to get like a hole in it or some shit. Okay. Um, actually, it happens on an episode of Scrubs, I think. Everything happens on an episode of Scrubs. That show is so good. So, oh, yeah, back in episode 41, I talked about comedy and satire and tragedy. 41, I was right. Uh, so tragedy, okay, six people are dead, five days, all because one horny guy decided to manipulate a child. At least stop calling this a goddamn love story. <laughs> 
Um, so the definition of tragedy is basically when uh, Hamartia or Hamartia or whatever. Hi, Marsha. Causes things to end badly for people. Uh, Hamartia is officially a tragic flaw, but I preferred my college professor's definition of a tragic mistake because a flaw makes something inevitable. A mistake makes it not inevitable and preventable, which makes it more tragic. And certainly flaws and mistakes both exist within this play. But then there's satire. Satire is the use of humor to ridicule the bad decisions that are causing things in society. So we can put Romeo and Juliet in the comedy tragedy if we assume the best intentions on both of their parts, i.e. that they both actually loved each other and Romeo just really didn't, wasn't just horny. Um, So we have to believe that it was really love at first sight for both of them. And they really did just want to get married. It was not about banging. Then a tragic series of mistakes are made to lead to their demise. We also have to ignore the fact that it actually has a happy ending because this ancient grudge that broke to new mutiny and civil blood leaving civil hands unclean or whatever, it ends. Because they die, the world gets better. The world is better without them in it. Usually the world is better with funeral horny teenagers. That's the lesson I learned from Friday the 13th. (laughs) So we have to ignore the fact that it actually has a happy ending in the overall. Um, So if you want to read it that way, that's fine. There's not a right answer unless I can get my Ouija board to work and get Shakespeare to tell me. And he'd probably just make sex jokes and be like universally unhelpful. And plus, I mean, like, he's so long winded. It would take forever with a Ouija board to get anything out of him. Yeah, but so am I. So we'll be fine. Oh, it'll be there for days. So going forward, I'm going to argue why to why I think this is a satire, but I want to start by why I think we should teach it that way. Uh, not as a satire, but like more as a mystery to be solved. Is it a satire or is it a tragedy? Because I'm not telling you to tell the kids to think one or the other necessarily. Um, so first, teaching it this way would reinforce the concepts of tragedy and satire. So if we think of the Shakespeare that's already read in schools, Macbeth. Tragedy. Hamlet. Tragedy. Julius Caesar. History tragedy. Yep. And Midsummer Night's Dream. Comedy. That's taught completely wrong, but yes, it's a comedy. It is. Mm-hmm. But it's taught... There's bestiality in it, guys! It's it's either it's either comedy or horrifying. Pick it's, your pick. Oh, the play is horrifying. And I love it. Um, we also read Merchant of Venice for some reason. Anti-Semitism! Yeah, it's supposed to be a comedy. Most Shakespeare companies won't even touch it. We shouldn't be reading it. Um... And, and it's rare for me to say, like, we should stop reading something because it's inappropriate. Read it at the college level. That's fine. But it's super hard to go into all the societal things around it when you only mm-hmm. have a couple weeks in high yeah, school. Yeah, like, that's definitely collegiate. It's like, hey, this is this is a historic look at anti-Semitism. It didn't start and end in 1940s. Yeah. Uh, so satire, though, is almost completely untouched, not just when you're reading Shakespeare, but when you're reading anything in school. Satire is not something you read. Second, it gives students a new way to read the show. If they're like me, they might not be into the romance aspect. They fucking hate romance. And they also might not think it's a tragedy because these characters are so unsympathetic. Oh, oh, sweet. This is completely off topic. But you, you, spoke, you, you talked about romance. You know that Stacey Abrams is also a romance author under a pen name? What? Yeah. Okay. We found out this week uh, she is a Buffy fan. She uh, is Supernatural been, She's fan. been watching Supernatural and she's really excited to watch the last few episodes, which don't tell us anything. We haven't finished it yet. Yeah. And she was a romance author. Jesus so, Christ. Stacey Abrams is everything you want a person to be. And I I want to meet her, but I am not worthy enough to meet her. Um, all right. So it gives me where to reach it. Uh, might not be in the romance. Might not think it's a tragedy because the characters have nothing sympathetic about them. But if somebody said, hey, think about this play. Is it tragedy or satire? It might have drawn me in because I've been like, oh, which one is it? There's a mystery I get to solve. That's cool. 
And then third, it helps kids develop and back up opinions. They've always been told that this is a tragic love story. They have not been given another way to think about it. So you could end this unit with being like, okay, I want you to read it. I want you to read it and decide if it's a tragedy or if you if it's a satire. What are you doing? I'm looking up her pen name. Okay. Um, so you could end this unit with a debate or with like a paper or you could have them like do the same scene in Romeo and Juliet in groups, but one group reads it as a tragedy and one group reads it as a satire. Like there are so many fucking options now if you just did it this way. And you're teaching them how to have opinions that are contrary to the universal opinion and how to debate them effectively and respectfully. There are so many things you could do with this. And we are just saying iambic pentameter is ba-bum, 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 bum-bum, bum-bum, bum I'm like, why? Why? I did teach that in my classroom. I taught them how to read iambic pentameter. I taught them how to read Shakespearean language. It's like say, hey, folks, did you know that Shakespeare is... Hey, kids, do you know that Shakespeare is just rap? <laughs> I taught them how to read it, but I also was like, guys, yes, you're going you're gonna to be tested over this over and over and over again. I'm giving you the groundwork for it. It's, it's a heartbeat. You'll be fine. But also, that's not what you're reading for. You're not reading for iambic pentameter. You should be reading for fucking meaning. I didn't say fucking meaning. I didn't, but... <laughs> In all of my 10 years in the classroom, I dropped an F-bomb one time. And I was very impressed. Like, when I'd see her, like, talking to her students, it's like, I was trying to figure out what was different. It's like, oh, she's not saying fuck every other word. It was to two of my former students who busted up laughing and said, we could always tell you're on the verge of it. <laughs> and no one will believe us because no one else is here. Oh, uh, Stacey Abrams' pin name was Selena Montgomery. Oh, okay. I've seen those. Yeah. Um, so why do I think it's a satire? That's what you're wondering now. I can tell. Yeah. So I'll start with what an English teacher who write for the Shakespeare Standard named Alex Benzaris points out, which is that um, he fully believes that this is not supposed to be a realistic show. And we are currently reading it as if it's realistic, as if this is actual love, um, especially given how fast everything happens. Five days, six dead people. That is very fast. Less than 24 hours from meeting to married. And then he kills somebody and then they bang like this. He just killed her cousin. Yeah. It's like, uh, okay, if you killed my cousin, like, 24 hours after we had met, I don't know if I would have married you 14 years later. 13 years later. I don't fucking know. Yeah. But, well, it depends on the cousin, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you should have seen my face. I'm like, hmm. So he points out that the speed of it makes it seem more like a fantasy or a satire about love, not about love itself. Because love doesn't work that way. Even if you have one of those, oh, we fell in love immediately relationships... It's not actually let's get married in 12 hours, and I'm pretty sure you would not be cool for the most part if they killed your cousin. But wait, hear, hear me out. What if um, Mark was 24? <laughs> that was a throwback. That was. I'm already for, I was like, I'm trying to remember, it was. I don't remember her name. Jessica. Jessica was 34. And Mark was 24. This just can't work. This can't work. But, you know. If he had been 25, maybe. Would have been fine. Would have been absolutely fine. Or if she hadn't been batshit insane. He also says that if we read between the lines, we should be able to critically analyze the show and actually feel superior to Romeo and Juliet rather than sorry for them. Because obviously we would never make these same fucking choices. And part of satire is looking at going, <laughs> those idiots. And honestly, if you're looking at this and finding them relatable, you might want to look, like investigate your relationship. <laughs> I mean, I find the friar relatable and it's, it's like, ugh, let's let these kids die. <laughs> or the nurse, like, oh, the exasperated nurse. The nurse, when Romeo gets exiled and they find out she's supposed to marry Paris, the, nur uh, the nurse actually says, nobody knows you're married to Romeo. <laughs> Just go into some polygamy, girl. It's like, <laughs> it's like you're fine. 
But instead, in class, we've been told to read the story as is, and it's turned into stories like Twilight, and we're told that this is a love story. That's fucking dangerous. Twilight is a is a dangerous stalker in Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. So we're reading Twilight. We're reading a. Uh, Twilight too, but we're reading Romeo and Juliet in a vacuum. We are not taking in the surrounding cultural issues around it, or like I'll talk about this more in a second. But yeah, they were both really young for getting married, even in Elizabethan times. They are lying to you in school when they tell you thirteen to sixteen. It was normal. It was not normal. You were it still was, a minor. It was legal. No. Oh no, it was not. What? It wasn't even legal. No. Wait, didn't Shakespeare end up getting married to like a 13 or 14 year old? No. Oh, damn. I'm going to talk about that because that's part of why I think it's satire. Shakespeare was the younger one. Okay. Oh, damn, Shakespeare. <laughs> so, Benzari also brings up uh, Petrarch's sonnets 132 and 134 from the Canzonere, which Shakespeare almost definitely would have read in school because, a, unlike a lot of what the authorship debaters say, which is like Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare's plays. Shakespeare actually did go to school. He was not an uneducated rural whatever. He was the son of a merchant. He would have gone to school. He just wasn't a nobleman. Yeah. So I'm not even going to try to read the titles of 132 and 134 because they're in Italian and I can't read that. But they are over-the-top love poems about how love consumes every part of your being. And these are not happy love poems. 134 literally ends with, I feed on sadness, laughing weep. Death and life displease me equally. And I am in this state, lady, because of you. (laughs) So Shakespeare would have read this and been like, oh, this is fucked up. Let me put this into a fucking play. Now, granted, he didn't write Romeo and Juliet. He stole it and then rewrote it. But this is also clearly an influencing factor, assuming he read it. So another point that is brought up is in a 2013 article from The Atlantic, and as it says in the headline, quote, Shakespeare was riffing on how people use the young old binary to manipulate others. The writer of this article discusses how immature Romeo and Juliet are through the whole thing, but how the older characters kind of seem swept up on it, and how sometimes those characters act like children themselves, but when it comes to the relationship things, that's especially true. But also there's this huge divide, and the kids are getting away with stuff because the adults are so far gone from their youths already. And there's even a line where Juliet's like, being old is my, is like being dead. They clearly already want to be dead. We are young. We are fiery. We are living real lives. And it's kind of true because the older people are completely checked out for the most uh, for most of the play. Like even the ones they bring in are in there because of like nostalgia or remembering what it was like to be young and in love. Or in the case of the friar, God damn, maybe I can finally make this fucking feud end. <laughs> so the article says, quote, for Romeo and Juliet, in other words, the youth and age, youth and age seem less solid, immutable categories than tropes. Their devices manipulated by R- Juliet or Romeo to give force to their sense of indignation or specialness or manipulated by the nurse to for- to give force to her af- affection and nostalgia or manipulated by Shakespeare to sweep adults into a romantic swoon. From this perspective, the point of the play isn't so much the exhilaration of young love or the dunderheadedness of young love. Rather, as often with Shakespeare, the point is the language itself, the dazzling, disturbing, rhetorical force of old-slash-young, corrupt-slash-innocent, experienced-slash-naive. So by putting things into tropes, you are almost automatically creating satire. You are creating these dichotomies and pitting them against each other in a really over-the-top, outlandish way. And when something is over-the-top and outlandish, it's pretty close to falling into satire, even if you don't mean it to. Then we also need to look at uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream, in which the mechanicals are rehearsing for a play. 
It's called Pyramus and Thisbe, a.k.a. Romeo and fucking Juliet. <laughs> it's an absurd play. And this play is the most absurd part of this otherwise absurd play. And you aren't just laughing at the mechanicals as they're struggling through the script. You're laughing at how ludicrous the story is of immediately falling in love and meeting each other at night. And, you know, there's a wall and shit like that. It's Romeo and Juliet. And you're not just laughing at how bad the mechanicals are. You're laughing at how stupid the story is. Oh, don't they get attacked by a bear in Pyramus and Thisbe? Or am I getting that mixed up with a different myth? Or maybe it's a lion. I think there's a lion, yes. I think it's a lion. They get eaten by a lion. I think the lion is in the play, yes. Yeah. Like, it's not an act. It's not like Exit's Pursued by a Bear. It's, okay. you know, it's an actor as a lion. Also, I saw somebody writing, wrote another article. I didn't end up doing this one, but they were bringing up how Shakespeare was usually really good, really good at tragedy. And also, like, little things that were brilliant, like Exit's Pursued by a Bear. And they're like, how on earth did this dude write Romeo and Juliet if it was intended to be a tragedy, but it's, we're stacking it up against things like Macbeth, which he was also arguing that it's not a tragedy. Um, he was arguing it for, for it to be a rom-com. Yeah, this is a rom-com, but it's a it's a dark rom It's a, like a dark rom-com. Not nearly as dark as Christian Mingle the movie, though. See, that was dark for a different reason. Mm-hmm. And yes, we have watched that. It's one of our competitions that we've done. Yeah, um, we, we can't do normal Valentine's Day. We hate we, Valentine's Day. We watch, ba- we watch bad movies. And that year it was who can get through the most of these movies without walking out of the room. We both almost lost on that one. Ugh, it was bad. So, Romeo and Juliet was written between 1594 and 1596, and Midsummer was written between 1595 and 1596. The fact that he had these together so closely makes me think that, I mean, unless he was purposefully trying to write it in two different ways, I think he was using the same story twice just because it was easy to use for a comedy. Or it could have been a reference like, hey, remember that last comedy I did? Yeah, or even, why do you guys not realize this is a comedy? Self-referential work! Mm-hmm. And so here's my own thought. And I told you I'd be talking about Shakespeare and his wife. This is not backed up by anywhere. This is just my own thought. From looking at Shakespeare's own life and marriage, uh, you may know that he married a woman named Anne Hathaway and that they had three kids. What you may not know is that when they got married, he was either 17 or 18 and she was 26. The average age of marriage in Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's time, 26. Not the teenage years that they use to justify what happens in Romeo and Juliet. And in fact, there's a whole scene in Romeo and Juliet where her dad is like, She's too young to get married. This is going to end badly. (laughs) Even within the play. Yeah, this is bad. We shouldn't do this. Uh, According to some sources, Anne was his cousin, but it's iffy. Um, So he was 17 or 18. He was below the legal age to get married. And if he got married, he couldn't have an apprenticeship, which was important to, you know, having a job back then. But she was pregnant. Oh, He technically had to get her parents to sign off on this, but she was an orphan, so they had to work around things. William himself is the one who sped things up to avoid the embarrassment that was going to come with it if it came out that she was already pregnant and they they didn't get married fast enough. So they had the baby, um, that was Susanna, and he took off. He went and became an actor in London. He did come back from time to time. Some sources are like, he came back frequently. I'm like, really? Because then how did he write so many plays in such a short time, especially when he was being forced to work like eight days a week by the royalty or the nobility or whoever he was working for at the time? But he did go back and manage to father a set of twins. I think if it was eight days a week, um, he was working a hard day's night and he was working for the Beatles. We don't know <laughs> that Paul McCartney is not an immortal. Paul is dead. We've he talked did. about this on the show before, Austin. He finally died, but then no, he, he was reborn. Paul McCartney is still alive. Um, He's like a phoenix rising from the ashes. So he did come back and he did father upset of twins with her. Um, and we are left with the question, though, like, did they ever love each other? Or was this just lust that a, a bad choice 
probably made pretty impulsively with an 18-year-old kid and a 26-year-old grown-ass adult. Or did they actually love each other? Not once did she and the kids come to visit him in London. And by the time he retired, he lived for, I think, four or six more years after that. She outlived him by seven years. I know that. Um, they never came to visit him. And the cottage up in Stratford-upon-Avon, it's called Anne Hathaway's Cottage, not Shakespeare's Cottage. I think that says something about their relationship. But that's me. Oh, my God. I just realized how awful the movie Shakespeare in Love is in hindsight thinking about this. I will say he did love his kids. There is actual evidence to back up the fact that he loved his kids. Hamlet exists because he loved his son. Um, Because, you know, his daughters are the only ones who grew up. And that's not the point of today. I just wanted to say, like, regardless of regardless of Anne and William's relationship, he did love his kids. So this all makes me think that Romeo and Juliet is a satire in which he is poking fun at his own decisions, which were decisions that society wanted him to make. Because he was a horny teenager who was like, bang, bang, bangity, bang, instead of bang, bang, bangity, bang. And all of a sudden she's pregnant and society's like, yeah, you got to get married now. So instead he took Romeo and Juliet and Romeo's like, I want to bang that. But it's pretty clear from the get go that Juliet's like, "Mm, no, thank you. Wearing my virgin clothes, bro. What does that fucking tell you? And he's like, shit, I got to marry her first. And then everybody dies. And I do think this kind of like Romeo and Juliet was written right after the death of his son. And if he had never made this series of choices, his son never would have been born. And so this tragic event never would have happened. Or maybe there was some choice along the way that resulted in the death of his son that would could be directly linked to the marriage in the first place. But we don't know what his son died of. That has actually never been figured out. So no matter what, if he hadn't married Anne Hathaway, he would never have had to live through the death of his son. So I think he's making fun of the fact that he was forced by society to make these decisions that did eventually result in some level of unhappiness at the very least. Um, also, when he died, he gave Anne Hathaway his second best bed as her and his will. Now, I did read one thing that said that's normal. The best bed was for guests. But I'm like, then why did everything else go to his daughter? <laughs> so um, that's my thought on it, is I think that he took his own life and was like, you know what? If you can't laugh about it, if you can't laugh about it, you're never going to be happy again. So I, I don't think he'd like the fact that people think it's a love story. No. And speaking of, I'm going to move away from satire for the end of it to tell you why to stop calling it a goddamn love story. This can give people some bad ideas. We're teaching this book to children, kids who are waiting to be told what a healthy relationship looks like. And I worked with kids this age and oh my God, they think this is a love story and they think this is what love is supposed to look like. And they think you're supposed to be so tied up in each other that you can't live apart. And we see this repeated in things like Twilight. They're like, oh man, Edward's so romantic. And I actually flat out said to kids, I'm like, it's romantic if somebody sneaks into your room and watches you sleep. They're like, oh shit. It's like, like I, I'm like, guys, re- like Twilight. That's fine. I've read it a few times. Please don't think of that as a healthy relationship. It's not healthy when a dude sneaks up on you in the middle of the night and tries to get you to do stuff. It's not healthy when, and I, I'm saying guy because that's the character in the show in the, the movie, but or, if it's a guy or a girl me. or anything else, if they're saying stuff like, hey, you know, we can just make out. And you're like, oh, that's sweet. But no, you're like <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. And now you're the one at fault. It, These are not healthy relationships things. And if you think for a second, oh, I literally cannot live without this person, it's time to live. And I'm saying that on a podcast with my husband, who I love very much. Okay, I know for a fact you cannot live without me because I'm the only one who knows how to cook. (laughs) You're talking in practical terms. I'm talking about in existential terms. Same thing. Also, I lived alone. I have yet to starve to death. I mean, I was eating... (laughs) 
my darkest moment, I was sitting in front of my TV watching, I believe, the Tony Awards with a bottle of champagne and a jar of Nutella. But by God, I didn't starve. (laughs) But yeah, no, if you at some point in your relationship are like, I really can't live without them. I would have to die if they left me or died. No, you need to leave. You're done. This is not healthy. Oh, it's like, I, I, I actually started thinking, it's like, it's like, oh, God, I have to take care of four cats on my own. Yeah, practical. Practical terms. Everything is absolutely. practical. Yeah. Like, but like. Eh. Practical terms. Absolutely. Or if you're thinking, you know, he does this thing that kind of makes me uncomfortable or she doesn't. But, you know, they love me. No, they don't. Am I speaking from experience? Perhaps. Maybe. Was I possibly unconsciously influenced by things like this? Possibly. Did I have a hard time distinguishing fiction from fact until I was too old for that? Maybe. (laughs) I mean, I've never had that problem. Ignore that previous episode where I wanted to go on a road trip with Bigfoot. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm telling you right now, guys, no matter what, please stop teaching this as a love story. Teach it as what it is, which if that's a satire or tragedy, that's fine. I'm talking about teach it as what it is, which is an unhealthy relationship that wreaked havoc on a community. And these people had ones who supported and loved them so much that it actually did like destroy people along the way for them to be going through this. Most people don't even have that. So no, this is not a healthy relationship. Stop teaching it as a love story. This is a lust story. And you know, if you want to get it on with your lustiness and everybody's a fucking adult... Cool. You do you. Just don't call it love. And that is why Romeo and Juliet should be taught as a satire or at least given the option to be taught as a satire rather than tragedy and should never be taught as a love story. I would straight up love to see a production of Romeo and Juliet where they lean into it as a satire and like make it funny. I've always wanted to direct it that way. I think we can do it. Maybe once our podcast takes off. Yes. uh, uh, Once we get our 11th review. Yeah, we got a 10th review this week. Um, I think it's called like from someone like you're not your sister's reviews. I'm like, is that Austin's sister? <laughs> it says very specifically, it's not my sister. I, we don't, Are we you don't... calling her a liar? Yeah. Like, no, because she would never say nice things about us like that. <laughs> <laughs> we're kidding. We're kidding. Um, <laughs> no, we actually don't know who it is. Yeah. But yeah, so I, if my theater community out there would ever like to collaborate on making a satirical Romeo and Juliet... I'm on. I'm all on board. I could. Can I, I, I'm on board as long as I could be the person who gets to run the slapstick. Satire is not slapstick. It can be. Two different things. There's going to be a slapstick in this for the fights. I worked on a production of Romeo and Juliet once. We were able to change her entirely from her normal clothes to her wedding clothes in about 15 seconds, an entire wardrobe change, because everything was elastic and we could just yank things off and then put them back on, which was cool. But that was not my point. <laughs> the friar was 20, 21, and he agreed to shave the top of his head and have the friar haircut. He was so excited when it was over, and he was like, yeah, I could grow my hair back. And then he immediately got cast in another show because of the hair, and he had to leave it like that for over a year. No, that's the, not what and, you want to get typecast as. No, and Austin, as somebody who shaves their head, you know that it doesn't always grow back as thick and luscious as it once did. No. It's getting long already. How fast does your goddamn hair grow? Really fast. I shaved this morning. <laughs> All right. So are you ready for some questions? Yes. So will tragedy and satire be on the test? Yes. Will how absolutely horny Romeo is be on the test? Depends on if this is high school or college. Will the nonstop sexual and rapey comments be on the test? Depends on if this is high school or college. Will the fact that the relationship only lasted five days and resulted in six deaths be on the test? Yes. When you read it in school, were you aware that it was only five days? I think vaguely. 
But it's like, it's one of the, it had to be pointed out to you. It's like, this was five days. Will the ages of Romeo and Juliet be on the test? No. <laughs> Will the tropes of the concept of tr- ages as a trope be on the test? Maybe in college, definitely not in high school. Will the meaning of the word Vestal be on the test? No, because then they'd have to explain that. <laughs> now, if you are curious to see where I'm getting this stuff from, it's not just that I am infinitely wise and a brilliant reader of Shakespeare, even though obviously I am. There's this great set of books, and they're also available online, called No Fear Shakespeare, where they translate things into modern, contemporary modern English. And they don't pull punches. They don't use euphemisms. So if you read that first scene of Romeo and Juliet with the servant guys, the word rape is literally there more than once. So any Shakespeare play you're ever reading, I told my students this too. If you're ever reading a Shakespeare play for a class or whatever, get No Fear Shakespeare. It will actually help you understand. Because at the end of the day, that's what Shakespeare's about. Understanding what he's saying, not reading iambic pentameter and being lost. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Wow. I told like I kept running all the room telling Austin how excited I was about this. Uh-huh. Week. She's like I, I kept like, like save it for the podcast and she wouldn't. I like I, I saved most of it. I had some zingers that I recycled from last night, but I don't think anyone else has to know that. I just ruined it. <laughs> so where can people find us? Why they can find us um, in the dark shadows in their minds. No, they can find us uh, on Facebook at on facebook.com slash on the test pod on Twitter at on the test pod on Instagram at on the test pod and our website on the test pod.com. We are also on every major and minor podcast provider at this point. Please give us a iTunes review because that really does help us out and be nice because we're nice to you. Yeah. We're just not especially nice to Shakespeare. No. Or to rats. Apparently. <laughs> and, and you can we're, also... Oh, we're also not nice to incels. I'm How not... dare we? Oh my God. This whole episode was like, let's stop being nice about incels. I feel like as, as the internet as a whole, we should be less nice to incels. Are we the internet? I feel like we embody the internet. We are the chorus that explains what the internet is doing. <laughs> oh my God. We should, we should write a play. That's that. Interesting. Like, Interesting. We're, we're like halfway through November, so we already missed NaNoWriMo. But we, we can make our own NaNoPlaymo. Deca Playma? <laughs> um, you can also find us on December 1st from 6 to 6.30 p.m. on the internets. If you buy tickets from IndiePodsUnited.com. And it's, again, $10 all access pass to five days of really awesome stuff that you should come listen to and watch and enjoy. And honestly, like... There is literally everything. If there's anything you're interested in learning more about, anything, it's probably on there. There's paranormal stuff. There's like mom stuff. There's stuff like us. There's, I think I saw some like businessy stuff. I don't know. I haven't looked for the entire schedule yet. I'm really excited. And so join that as well. Yeah, and if, you're like, if you're like me and you've got a quiet job where you basically spend all day listening to audiobooks and podcasts, this is going to be a great way to find some new ones. So I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. So Some that's... new ones that don't include Joe Rogan, because fuck him. Ugh. I did notice, um, I was on Spotify, it was like top 25 podcast episodes of the last year, like 25 episodes period. Joe Rogan, and this is a curated list, I don't think this is a by ratings list, Joe Rogan was not on the list. <laughs> and that was Spotify. Oh, Spotify had to pay a buttload of money for him. A couple of my other podcasts have gone over there too, and I'm like, <sighs> I don't... I get it. If this is your primary job, I kind of get it. But I also can't imagine like having a gate on what we're sharing. No. Like advertisements, absolutely. If somebody wants to sell, have, have us read ads, we have no moral compass. We will I, read your ads. I mean, you heard how good we were at reading ads earlier. This should be our addition. <laughs> Give us a better chance. Um, ads, absolutely. I will sit through ads. I will sit like I've got podcasts that do eight minutes of ads. I'm like, I will listen to those. But and I will I will pay for your Patreon. I don't want to, have to pay for a 
conglomerate service just to listen. And that bums me out when podcasts go over to that. Anyway, on that note, class, class dismissed. dismissed.